Welcome to Follow the Money Ball at the intersection of sports and money with a healthy dose of funny and irreverence too. Here's your host, David Sloan. Welcome to Follow the Money Ball. I'm David Sloan and I have opinions. I also have 44 years of experience as an agent for MLB players to back up those opinions. I'm going to be talking about the intersection of sports and money with a variety of guests that I believe you will find very interesting. Let me introduce my very first guest, Ricky Vellante. Ricky is an attorney who specializes in sports and entertainment law. He is the chief executive officer and general counsel of the Professional Collegiate League, as well as a partner in RVIS Media Partners. And he's my attorney. He has been practicing in this area for eight years and fun every moment, right? Never a dull moment, at least. So... One of the things that I have the greatest amount of interest in is origin stories, so to speak. And that being said, I think it's always best to start at the beginning of the story. Where did you get your start? I assume, as almost everyone who I have encountered in the world of sports, that when you were a young man, you were involved on the playing side of sports, correct? That is correct. I was probably four years old when I started playing baseball and soccer. So it's uh, been a, I think, a, a life of love, I guess, for for most sports. And uh, as a fan, yeah, as far back as I can remember, I've always loved watching and going to games. So four years old, damn, you were a prodigy. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, growing up in the middle of nowhere in Virginia, there was uh, little else to do other than play sports i guess i guess so football and soccer now as you grew up did those continue to be the sports that you focused on yeah so um virginia had when i was a kid a a lawsuit actually that i believe was brought by the cheerleaders uh, or group of cheerleaders in virginia that ended up resulting in soccer being moved to the spring so unfortunately when i got to high school i had to choose between baseball and and soccer uh and maybe looking back on it foolishly chose baseball uh but at the same time it led me to where i'm at today which uh so i guess not so foolish so why do you say foolishly were you were you a better soccer player than a baseball player i definitely was really i was um, yeah i i was good at baseball and um especially good from from the area that I came from, which had a tradition of producing a handful of of players that uh, at a minimum played in the minors, a couple of them, I think even might have had a cup of coffee in the majors. Um, But uh, that said, I, I was a much better soccer player. Really? Okay. Well, that's very interesting. At that level now, you said it was high school where you had to make the decision to transition from soccer to baseball, but you still played football, correct? I played football for one year. So actually, uh, my parents would not allow me to play football for the long, longest time. Um, I think, my, if I recall correctly, my dad had a friend who was paralyzed from the waist down, um, and my parents, my mom had seen a handful of her friends and her brother's friends because her her brother went to Virginia Tech for football um, who all sustained you know long-term injuries and things like that so it was not until my junior year of high school that I was allowed to play football which as you can guess by that point 
the ship has kind of already left the dock <laughs> in terms of, of the coach's perspective on who's getting playing time. Uh, but I did play for a year uh, still in high school. Okay. And so you, then you didn't play your senior year? No, because at that point I was uh, travel ball uh, on the baseball side. So it was, it was you know. Year round, huh? 12 month, yeah, 12 month commitment. Right, right. That's. Um... For better or for worse, it seems that uh, is what baseball has kind of, um, I would say, devolved into. Um, I know in my particular career as an agent, it uh, morphed from the point where you had guys who played multiple sports and were very good baseball players who eventually got to where they decided or it was decided for them that the best route to a college scholarship or a potential pro career was to focus strictly on baseball. And it went from, you know, the occasional showcase or if you were really good enough, the uh, area code games or what have you to perfect game. Once they got involved, it was just a, a nonstop series of this showcase and that showcase and the other showcase. And um, again, it, it, it became a, a year round um I wouldn't uh, avocation, let's say, and and when you weren't playing, you were training, correct? Yeah. So when I was fourteen, uh, my parents uh, set me up with a, a personal pitching coach, uh, and again, unfortunately, where I lived, the you had to drive about forty-five minutes to get to anybody that was worth taking their advice. <laughs> so uh, you know, two to three times a week from. You know, all four years that I was in high school, I was driving 45 minutes to an hour uh, to go to a personal pitching coach. And then when I was 16, I started playing showcase on top of high school ball at Little League. I see. I see. Well, yeah, that that's quite a commitment. Um, and all this time you were also in school and obviously... Um, you were a, a good student, I would assume, and that took up a lot of your time as well. So, um, so now let's say you're you're in your senior year, and you are shooting for either college or potentially a pro opportunity, as far as baseball was concerned. And how did that work out? Yeah. So, I, a couple of things I would say on the the educational side. I went to what was essentially a college prep private school from the age of five through eighth grade. So when I was in high school, frankly, I was kind of bored <laughs> on, on the educational side because I went from having an hour plus, I think the school rule was no class could give you more than an hour worth of homework and we had seven classes. So, you know, we, we were, you know, doing a lot on, on the schooling side. So by the time I got to, to high school, that was very much in cruise control. And I was focused on, on the baseball side. And when I was a senior, our team ended up going to the state championship finals. We were eliminated in the regional semifinal my junior year, went to the state finals my senior year. And then um, during that season, I had... Um, either an impingement or a stretch labrum in my right shoulder. So I was doing, on top of the personal pitching coaching, on top of the <laughs> the showcase ball, uh, I was also going to a physical therapist three times a week 
to um, address my issues with my shoulder, um, and I had to be ramped up throughout the season from the bullpen into the starting rotation. Still ended up throwing almost 70 innings in that compressed season. That's a lot. And <laughs> yes, it, it, it ended up leading to where we're going to get to in a moment. But um, uh, during that time, I was being scouted by uh, a handful of D1 schools um, off my memory. It was West Virginia, uh, Coastal Carolina, George Mason, and then there was uh, University of Richmond, uh, Catawba College down in North Carolina. I think they're D2. Um, but unfortunately, I could not go to any of their showcases that they had because of my injury. So I ended up kind of getting written off by, by most of the, of the college scouts, um, despite the fact that I had uh, quite a good year on the field. Virginia is an area that is known for producing uh, quite a few very good players. Were any of your teammates um, on your high school team or your travel ball teams, were, were any of them able to play college ball or pro ball? Uh, our center fielder from my high school team ended up playing at Hampton-Sydney, I believe. I think he might have been the only one um, of us or excuse me, uh, our second baseman also ended up playing, I believe, at Randolph-Macon. So low D3 in Virginia. We had a couple of guys that ended up playing college ball. Um, and then I ended up playing college ball as well. Um, and on my showcase team, I played with one of uh, Verlander's younger brothers. Um, so I, I believe he never played college, but um, he was there and Frankly, I kind of lost track of those of a lot of those guys. I would imagine, given the talent level, that several of them played college. And to your point, given the area of Virginia that we were in, there were a lot of like we played Goochland, who's starting pitcher at a full ride to Virginia Tech. Their catcher slash first baseman at a full ride to Virginia. Um, Goochland's also where the Verlanders are from. Um, so we we certainly played a lot of talented players that I know ended up playing in the college ranks. Wow. So that was pretty decent competition and must have given you a taste of what was out there. So now uh, when you went to college, did you go with the intention of playing baseball? Yes. Yes. I went, started at the University of Mary Washington, which at the time they were ranked in Division Three, um, and their coach uh, was also a part-time scout for the Yankees, um, so it was a it was a definitely a star-studded Division three team. Um, and then, unfortunately, so I won the Freshman of the Year award for the fall season. And then my very first pitch of my first appearance in our first spring scrimmage, I tore my UCL. Nice timing. Great timing. So, um, and unfortunately it was one of those diagnoses where they couldn't tell if it was a complete tear or not. So first we tried to go the non-surgical route in terms of physical therapy and recovery. Um, that didn't work. That didn't take, <laughs> um, we had built myself back up, you know, to the point that, that I was going to get on the mound and, and immediately it, it didn't feel, feel right. And, um, so then I ended up having the surgery, 
my second week of my sophomore year. That kept me out, obviously, for the entirety of my sophomore year while going through physical therapy. Um, And then at that point, I transferred to Lake Erie College, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, which was a Division II program, and played there my junior and senior year. So it took more than a year from the time of your initial injury until the time you had the surgery? Yeah, so I remember pretty well the first time I threw off a mound post-surgery and it being like kind of one of the most terrifying moments of my life because, you know, you've just spent all of these months or a year plus, you know, going through... If you, if you tack on the physical therapy treatments I did pre-surgery, it had been about 17 months or so wow. between the point at which I tore my UCL to the next, um, you know, live scrimmage setting where I was throwing off a mound. And it was, yeah, like I said, it was kind of terrifying because you just, you don't know <laughs> uh, if you're going to have that feeling again. <laughs> yeah, well, in the, and in addition to that, uh, terrifying feeling. Um, I'm sure that the the physical uh, pain uh, was no day at the beach either. So um, when you when you did come back, where were you in terms of comparing to where you had been before the injury? Were you seventy percent the player, eighty uh, percent? Where would you say that you were at that point? Seventy seventy five percent or so. So pre surgery, my senior year of high school and going into the that fall season of my freshman year i was consistently 89 to 92 i had a good really good slider pretty good curveball and i was developing my change up um and then post surgery i think i might have topped out at 86 once and so that was super frustrating because, you know, to know that you had it and then not have it anymore yeah, to, was, was, was not easy. Yeah, I, I forget who it was that uh, said it, but there was a, a player from back in the 50s or 60s who said, I was throwing the ball just as hard as I ever did. It just didn't get there as fast. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So now, um, in the meantime, when you were going through all this process, is that what made you consider um, a career involved in sports, but not as a player. Um, what did you major in when you when you went to college? So when I went to Mary Washington, I was pre-poli-sci and had always had somewhat of an interest in working in politics and being, you know, in Virginia and right there by D.C., was something that intrigued me, but very quickly when I got into the coursework, I was like, no, this this is not me. And uh, when I transferred uh, up to Lake Erie, I ended up majoring in, in sports management. And that was when I kind of realized, well, you know, can't be the ace of the now Cleveland Guardians, maybe you can one day be the GM, um, you know, or something along those lines. And so that became sort of my my goal and you know fortunately i had a really good advisor who you know still a a very good friend of mine to this day and mentor who said you know if you want to work in professional sports 
you know, MBAs are a dime a dozen these days, you know, maybe you should consider going to law school instead. And that was, I think, like a month before the second to last round of LSATs my senior year. So I very quickly, like, just dove headfirst into the idea and um, actually took the LSAT the first time with a concussion because I had been rear-ended on the drive back up to get to have the LSATs taken in, in the Cleveland area. Didn't do so hot, took it a second time, did much better. And at that point, I was sort of on my way to, to law school. Really? So you had no prior interest in, in the law? You know, uh, A Few Good Men was always one of my favorite movies and is to this day. So, like, I guess thinking back on it, I always thought it was it was something that was intriguing. You know, the, the concept of being a lawyer. Jag was also one of my favorite shows as a kid. Um, so... I certainly saw plenty of it on TV, but never had really thought of myself in, in that sort of a, of a setting. And I had no family who, I, I believe I was the first member of my family on either side to even get graduate degrees. So I certainly didn't have anybody within my family to be like, oh, you know, so-and-so is a lawyer, I can talk to them. So I, I had no one that I really knew. I didn't even know a lawyer <laughs> um, when, at that point in my life. So. I had never really thought about it. So no formal role model then in terms of uh, I want to grow up to be Perry Mason or the guy from L.A. Law or something like that then. That's very interesting. Um, and, and you were more, let's say, motivated to look into the management side of sports as opposed to um, the, the representation side of things. Yeah, I was growing up my brother and I put so many time, so much time and hours into the likes of Madden and MLB 2K and All-Star Baseball when that used to be a thing and always building teams. So that was always the, the context in which I considered it. Um, and fortunately, again, fortunately, I ended up going to Cleveland State's law school and my eventual mentor, a uh, gentleman by the name of Peter Carfagna had been the chief legal officer and general counsel of IMG when that when IMG was you know the preeminent sports agency when they had you know Casey Close and and uh, um, Tom Condon and uh, uh, Jeff Schwartz all those guys uh, on on the, the team sports side and on the individual sports side they had. Um, uh, Stephanie Johnson and they had uh, Gavin Forbes so like they had golf and tennis so like he you know had done a ton of player representation stuff in the legal context and that kind of opened my eyes to the idea of working on on that side of the table and um, yeah he was definitely a, a big influence on me um, throughout my my law school career. So from that perspective or, or at that time in your life you kind of decided to take the route away from the roster building, so to speak, on behalf of a team and in the direction of building a uh, client base for you as a practicing attorney. Exactly. Yeah. And in that, at that same time, I ended up becoming a agent for a couple of soccer players. Um, one of them was a gentleman who I, he was Spanish born. He was playing for a Slovenian Premier League club and he was looking to transfer to the U.S. And 
he connected with me on LinkedIn because he had seen some some videos that I had recorded with uh, Professor Carfagna and said, hey, would you be interested in, in potentially being my intermediary and negotiating a deal for me to come to the States in either the USL, the NW, NASL, or um, MLS. NASL is now defunct for all intents and purposes, but we ended up, um, or I ended up securing a deal for him to Puerto Rico FC, who was a member of the NASL, and they were owned by Carmelo Anthony at the time. And I remember sitting in my, uh, essentially the equivalent of my legal ethics class and getting an email from the club's uh, sporting director saying that Carmelo had signed off on the contract because the contract we negotiated made him the high, made my guy the highest paid player on the team. And so Carmelo had to sign off on the deal because of that. Um, and so that was a, a super cool email to get. And we could probably have a discussion around ethics and morals of whether I should have read that email while sitting in that class. But um, nevertheless, I was very excited to see it. Well, it would seem to me the toughest thing at that point would have been to not jump up and high-five yourself in the middle of the class, um, which might not have gone over well with your uh, professor. So um, tell me something in terms of that experience. Is it uh, in that world of soccer similar to uh, the way it is with baseball and, and I know football and I assume basketball where you have to um, acquire a uh, license in order to be able to, to be an agent for players, or is it just a matter of saying, this guy wants me to represent him? So at the time, the rules actually just changed. Uh, FIFA just instituted um, a agent certification process that now applies globally. But at the time, they had essentially deferred. So you have FIFA, which is the international governing body of soccer, and then each region has its own regional entity. So CONCACAF here in, in the US, um, which oversees the, you know Canada, Mexico, the US, uh, Central America, and the islands. Um, and they had then deferred it to basically the national organization that oversees the sport of soccer in that particular country. So in the U.S., that being USSF. At USSF, basically their process was send us a check. <laughs> so you fill out this form, send us a check, and then you're an agent. And so I, I did just that and didn't have to take a test or anything. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I didn't even get confirmation from USSF they had received everything and that I was on the list. It was just one day I went to their website and I was on the list and that was it. Wow. That's, uh, that's expedited. Let's call it. So, so now you Very are, different. so, so now you are a, uh, at this point in, in, in your career, you had been admitted to the Ohio bar, correct? No. So when I was representing the soccer players, I was still in law school. <sighs> Oh, okay. I see. So once you graduated law school, you were then admitted to the Ohio bar, right? Right. And at that point, you decided to full on pursue the career on the sports side of the Ohio bar, so to speak? Yes. So I very quickly realized I did not want to be an agent. 
Um, I represented a, a few musicians as well at the same time that I was representing uh, those couple of soccer players. And again, realized, I, I did the work, but I realized it, it really wasn't something that I wanted to do. Uh, I realized that while I wanted to be on the deals for athletes and or entertainers, I more wanted to be viewing it from the perspective of the transactions. Uh, and not necessarily be doing all the hand-holding that goes on as the agent. Um, and so I did transition out of being a manager of talent and an agent of talent and transitioned more to being legal counsel for players individually and for agencies as well as a whole to serve as sort of an, in that outside counsel role where they bring me in on the transactions to either simply review the agreements, make sure there's no issues, and or in some cases uh, negotiate the agreements on the player's behalf. So what is the difference in, in that instance that you just mentioned, uh, negotiating on the player's behalf as opposed to acting as the agent for a player? When there's something that they want at 2 a.m., I'm not the one they're calling. Right. But in terms of actually saying the contract's going to be three years as opposed to four, and there's going to be this amount of money paid in year one, year two, year three, you're you're still doing those terms? No. So in those situations, um, that's where the licensing requirements kick in, Mm -hmm. players' associations. Um, I may advise, I may give my opinion, I should say, to an agent on what I think a player should be getting, but I'm more focused on the -the off-the-field stuff, so... Any, if it's an NIL deal in the college context or it's a endorsement agreement in the professional context, um, I will be the one that comes in and, again, at a minimum, review the contract and make sure that there are no conflicts with other deals that they've already signed, that there's no, um, you know, really bad terms for the player mixed into the contract somewhere, make sure that the player really understands what they're committing to because there's always an expectation that the players are going to be doing certain things. Uh, and then, you know, I'll give it the thumbs up and tell the agent and player, you know, it, it's ready to go when you guys are ready to go as far as the, the legal side of it goes. But, um, but yeah, the player representation side and the, the negotiating the team side, that, that's left to the agents. Oh, okay. So you're, you're more going to, for example, take a look at the guarantee language and essentially certify, for lack of a better term, that there's no holes in the guarantee that the player or his agent need to worry about. Right. right. <laughs> and, you know, again, if, if it's a player's endorsement deal, like I, I can think of one example where uh, a player was presented with an agreement by an apparel company and had already done a campaign with a, for lack of a better term, dresswear company. And so we had to go through and carefully define the category to make sure that there was no conflict between the existing deals. So like I, I'll do those sorts of things as well to make sure the player can make as much money as possible and not infringe on any existing contracts. And not need to hire you to represent him in litigation because the uh, one company or the other is suing him for breach of contract. So what you chose to do was not the agent side of things, but more 
the counsel for the agent and or the player, um, making sure that the um, the deal as negotiated by the agent is uh, clean and conforms to the rules of the league and the laws of the state and country and universe. And that was where your career was at that point. So now um, let's move forward from there and go into um, the various uh, experiences that you've had. I know, for example, you were involved with um, a nascent, let's call it, uh, alternative to the NBA and um, somewhat of a, a competitor, if you will, for the G League. And uh, why don't you tell the listeners about that and, and how that worked out? Yeah, so when I was wrapping up law school, I was, uh, I got an email from my antitrust professor who said, hey, this, this antitrust economist reached out to me. He's looking for somebody who's interested in co-writing a note on the O'Bannon decision. And he's got the economic side covered. He just needs somebody to provide the, the legal context within the note. And I said, I'd love to. <laughs> Connect me. And that ended up being a gentleman by the name of Andy Schwartz. He was the non-testifying economic expert against the NCAA in the um, White, O'Bannon, and most recently Alston cases uh, against the NCAA. The Alston case was the one that went before the Supreme Court a couple summers ago. And in the course of us writing this legal note together for Marquette, uh, we realized that we saw eye to eye on, a, on how we thought um, college sports was ripe for disruption. And out of that was born the PCL. It had a few different iterations where at one point we were attempting to get historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, to, to break away from the NCAA. And then it ended up more in a model where it was simply going to be, you know, standalone teams that, that were all going to be owned and operated by the PCL uh, league office, akin to like the, the MLS or Premier League lacrosse or you know, one of the other single entity leagues that's out there. And then um, we were going to have teams up and down the East Coast. And we were right at sort of the breakthrough moment on the fundraising side and then global pandemic. So um, unfortunately, we did not have that in the old SWOT analysis for external threats that um, the world could shut down. Yeah, um, I know about that because it certainly uh, affected a, a enterprise that I was trying to get up and running at the same time as well. So um, let me ask you this just in terms of, of overview of things. What do you see? You, you, so you've been involved in the, at least tangentially, the, the Alston case, the O'Bannon case. So you're familiar with that side of things in terms of college sports. You've been involved on the other side in terms of professional sports. So let me ask you this. In terms of college sports, what do you see in the near future in terms of the biggest challenge uh, for, and I hate to use this term because it's just inadequate to to encompass the scope of of the uh, question but college sports in general do you think that um, TV rights and NIL issues are the biggest challenge or 
what do you see as you know the the biggest obstacle that will be facing the 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 schools and the conferences as opposed to the NC2A? Because in my not-so-humble opinion, the NC2A is a piece of shit organization that should have been uh, done away with many years ago. Um, there are fewer corrupt, more corrupt entities that exist in the world today than the NC2A and always has been. And um, nonetheless, uh, people who, who are in that sector of the world have to deal with the limitations that the NC2A uh, rules place upon them. Um, so I'd just be interested, and I'm sure the listeners would be interested as to your perspective, having been on essentially all sides of that particular issue. Yeah, we actually, I've also advised a couple of U.S. senators and state reps on NIL bills and things like that as well. Um, as well as collectives that have now formed. So I've definitely, definitely seen pretty much every side of this. Even the unionization efforts that happened during the pandemic, we kind of unofficially were consulting with a couple of those groups. Um, I think that there's a handful of things that are, I don't know that you can necessarily rank order them because they're all significant in, ha- in their potential impact and outcome. So you've got the NLRB procedure where athletes out of California um, have brought it forth to the NLRB that they qualify as employees under um, the NLRB rules and regs, which I have said for quite some time that they absolutely do meet those requirements. And um, the current director of of the NLRB put out a opinion letter uh, probably 18 months now uh, ago and said that she indicated that if, if this issue were brought before me, I would be inclined to say college athletes and not just revenue sports, but all sports do indeed meet the definition of an employee. Um, so that's going on. You've got the house case out of California, which has always been sort of the, the buildup point. Um, you've got the same legal team that represented the players in the O'Bannon case and in the uh, Alston case that are now representing the house plaintiffs. And this has always been, you know, in terms of the building blocks where they wanted to take this, because every time they've brought one of these cases, they've been able to chip away a little bit more at the economic model of college sports. And this is the one that, to your point, may get to TV revenue. And I think that's, you know, that that would be a seismic shift. That would be a real shift. I don't think NIL is as big of an impact as anybody likes to proclaim. So I think NIL, it certainly has had an impact to some extent, but I don't think it's been the seismic shift that some like to proclaim that it's been. And I think that those that proclaim that have a vested interest in either their reputational benefit or economic benefit of it being a seismic shift. Because at the end of the day, college athletes have no more power than they had before. They may have a little bit of leverage from time to time in the recruiting cycles now, but that's not leverage isn't power. And, you know, at the end of the day, these athletes still have all of the exposures that they had before NIL when it comes to player health and safety, when it comes to, as we just saw at Northwestern, hazing and the 
the imbalance of the power dynamics between the coaching staffs and the players yes. um, that lead to player harm. DJ Durkin, who killed a player, one of his players, is still a coach in college sports. I believe he's at Alabama now, um, or maybe he's at one of the schools in Texas. He's bounced around in the SEC now for the last couple of years. I mean, he literally ran a player to death, and he's still a coach in college sports. Um, so there are far greater issues that don't get addressed until we get to that power dynamic between universities and coaching staffs and the players. Um, you know, there's also the issues on the educational side where everybody until they're blue in the face will try to tell me that college athletes get a lot of benefits, but at the same time, you know, does it suck? Yes, but but it's reality. If you or I go to Ohio State University, we do not give the benefit to the school the same as you know, name whichever great Ohio State player you want to name. You know, they are providing millions of dollars of benefits to the institution, uh, both in terms of marketing and in terms of reputation of the school. And all of that filters into their ability to recruit not just athletes, but regular students too, because now you want to be at a school where things are cool. You know, the the Flutie effect, which first happened after Doug Flutie's Hail Mary um, at Boston College and has been shown time and time again when you have schools like George Basin and Florida Gulf Coast who make a big tournament run in college basketball. You see this massive spike in applications and overall attendance at the school. So that you know, college sports is the front, you know, the front porch. That that is the mechanism that is used to be the brightest, biggest beacon for these campuses to recruit. Again, not just other athletes, but to recruit regular students as well. So and raise their the, tuition and raise their tuition. So at the end of the day, you know, these athletes are providing massive economic benefits to these schools, and they really have no say in that. I mean, again, yes, I know NIL exists, but when you look at the numbers, yes, a guy like Bryce Young is getting seven figures, but very few others are. And again, I, that's where I go back to the players still don't have any power, which was what we were always trying to address with the PCL and what we've tried to address in other efforts to help college athletes. Um, but until that changes, you know, the NCA and the schools and going back to your, your original question, the schools are just as bad. Even if you got rid of the NCAA, you know, these schools could have all walked away from the NCAA at any moment in time. <laughs> and still, you know, they don't need the NCAA, but they use the NCAA as sort of a shield for all of the bad PR. And at the end of the day, these schools and their leadership are as complicit in everything that happens to these athletes as much as the NCAA. And so even if you get rid of the NCAA, I don't think it really changes anything as far as how the athletes are treated uh, by the schools, because again, they're, they're right there <laughs> doing it all too. Well, I saw this firsthand when I was in college at Arizona state, one of the years that I was there, 1975, they had the number two ranked team in the country at the end of the year. And there were players who were friends of mine, guys that I hung out with that were playing on the team that very easily could have been stars had they gone to another school. But because of the fact that they had great players like Mike Haynes and Larry Gordon in front of them, guys who went on to become first-round picks, and in Haynes's case, a, a Hall of Fame uh, player, 
um, they weren't getting player time, playing time. And the coaches always knew that they had them by the balls because uh, they could prevent them from being able to, to transfer easily. And as a result of that, there was, there was no place for a, a talented, talented athlete like a gentleman who I knew there by the name of Carl Russell, despite the fact that had he gone to another college where he would not have been playing either behind or alongside a guy by the name of Mike Haynes, that he would have been a, a very big star. And the, the dynamic that you're addressing, the difference between power and leverage, it was addressed in a comedy routine by Chris Rock, who talks about the difference between being wealthy and being rich. And he put it very simply. He said, LeBron is rich, but the guy who owns the Lakers is wealthy. And it's the same thing. You were talking about the players at Ohio State and the, the benefit that they bring to, to the school, even the minor players. Um, you know, someone has to block for Bryce Young. And that offensive guard who's blocking for him, yeah, he's getting an education, room board, tuition, and fees. But in terms of the toll it's taking on his time away from being able to devote to academics and the physical toll it takes on his body, um, there's certainly, I would call it, a, an imbalance in terms of compensation as opposed to what's going to the school uh, compared to, to what the athlete is getting. Um, what about the effect of gambling that uh, is going on now legally in, in the overwhelming majority of states? Because in years gone, gone by, there were always point-shaving scandals and things like that that were brought on by, by gambling interests. And now those things are out from under the table and are out in the open. Uh, what do you foresee in terms of the effect of that in the, in the not-too-distant well, future? If we don't square away real compensation and rights for college athletes, we're going to have a massive scandal at some point because you have all of the risk factors where you have talent that is either underpaid or not paid. You have young individuals who have, frankly, a lot of time, you know, a decent amount of time on their hands. So you end up having sort of the boredom factor when they're not participating in their sport. They don't have all that much money or they don't have any money, um, but they're still high profile in a lot of ways. And so, and unsophisticated. And, and yeah, you, I mean, we're talking about 18 to 22 year olds. So not to knock, you know, football players or basketball players individually, anybody that's 18 to 22 doesn't know all that much. Their brain's not even fully formed at that age. You know, so you have all these risk factors that are right there. And all it's going to take is for the wrong group of people or the right group of people, depending on how you look at it, to realize that they can exploit the system quite easily. And they don't even have to impact the outcome of games, to your point about point shaving. You know, if if somebody gets offered, you know, six figures to miss a few free throws, and no one's going to be the wiser necessarily, it could happen. I mean, quite easily. And, you know, I know like the state of Ohio, has already had to suspend betting activities on college on a college baseball game because they found footage of uh, and I, I apologize I forget the university that it was, it was Alabama it was Alabama okay yeah so you had the, yeah. the Alabama baseball coach who was interacting with an individual who's placing bets on his behalf and so the state of Ohio issued a 
immediate notice to all of the regulator or all the proprietors in the state of Ohio saying you have to immediately suspend all betting activity on all Ab- Alabama b- baseball games until you otherwise hear from us. And, um, uh, you know, that that was the first instance that I'm aware of, at least this year. And as we continue to see more and more states come online, permitting sports betting and sports gambling, and, you know, there are no real restrictions around what games can get bet on in the college space. Um, I think, again, the risk factors are all there for a really bad situation to unfold. (laughs) Well, and not only that, but there's no way that the schools can adequately police the situation. If Johnny football at, uh, at, uh, again, to use your example of Ohio state, if, if someone approaches him and, and cultivates a relationship with him, um, it's very easy for that to escape the notice of uh, the football coach, the athletic director, anyone involved with the athletic program there. And that being said, um, you know, influence a game, let's call it, as opposed to just outright throwing a game. Um, and, and, you know, just enough so that the point spread is covered or not covered. So I, I I foresee tremendous risk there from that and almost no way that they can possibly police it adequately. Um, pivoting back for a second to, to, uh, Actually, David, one more thing ahead. I want to throw out that sure. I think you'll appreciate, especially as being a former agent under most of these state NIL bills, it is a requirement that the athlete has to submit their NIL deal to the compliance department for approval. If you're at Ohio State University, that is a public institution. I can now make a FOIA request to see that contract. So number one, you as an agent, how are you ever going to have the ability to negotiate deals in the future when anybody can get access to all of your deals, you know, the the endorsement deals? And number two, when you talk about those risk factors, well, now if I'm somebody who wants to conduct an illicit gambling scheme or scandal, I can make a FOIA request to all of the contracts for the athletes at a particular school and then identify which ones will be easiest to pick off. I understand. Um, one of the other things I wanted to, to touch on briefly in terms of the um, uh, NIL issue Um it hasn't popped up too much in baseball, but I'm thinking it's going to. And the reason that I feel that is recently uh, one of my close friends had a uh, colleague of his who uh, was in contact with someone who uh, was a prospect for the MLB draft. And it turns out that I believe this young man, um, his his draft dream uh, was not, uh, let's just say, answered. And that being said, he is more than likely going to end up at a college. Now, I don't know if this college, which is a D1 school, in their recruiting process happened to mention if you come to our school as opposed to Ricky's school, we can get you, you know, this deal and that deal and the other deal with people who are in our collective for our athletic department as a whole. And uh, a high-profile player like this young man certainly is, um, um, I believe in the future that's going to be uh, something that's going to, to come to the surface um, 
in a big way because college baseball is becoming more and more of a big deal. It used to be, um, you know, for example, when I was at Arizona State, uh, they had, if not the best, one of the best, certainly top two or three programs in the country. Unfortunately, it's not like that anymore, but it was back then. You know, you'd have a couple hundred people that would show up. Well, now these colleges are expanding their stadiums and they routinely will draw 2,000 people, 3,000 people, 5,000 people um, on, on the order of uh, what a, a significant minor league franchise will draw. And they're not playing 120 games like a minor league franchise. They're playing about half that many. But nonetheless, when you multiply, you know, two to 5,000 times 30 home games and 30 away games, that's a significant audience that these guys are, are playing before. Well, look, I think we should probably wrap up. There are a million other issues that you and I could get into that I'd love to get into, and and perhaps we should um, do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I always love to talk about sports, uh, especially the business side of sports, um, and appreciate you having me on and, and would love to, to come back. My thanks to Ricky Volante, who is my attorney, as well as a partner at RVIS Media and the CEO of the Professional Collegiate League. I would also like to thank my executive producer, the one and only Nicole Sandler, without whom this entire enterprise would not be possible. I look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Follow the Moneyball. Have a great one.